0: Actually reading the first uh, sermon of the Buddha, which is called the the Dharma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the discourse of turning the Dharma wheel. Uh, This is what I heard. The Buddha was staying at Baranasi in the deer park. At Isipatana, and he addressed the group of five bhikkhus. One who has gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized, and meaningless, and mortification, which is painful. Uncivilized and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, and release. It has eight branches. Appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, or being mindful, and concentrating. This is dukkha. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful and separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. This psycho-physical condition is dukkha. This is craving. It is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that. The craving for stimulation, craving for existence, and craving for non existence. This is cessation, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting and concentrating. Such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. Thus there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about these twelve aspects of these four noble truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision were entirely clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said, Inspired, the five delighted in his words. And while he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless Dhamma eye arose in Kondanya, who said, whatever arises is something that ceases. Maybe just a few comments on that. There's another passage I found recently in the, in the Sanyutta Nikaya where the Buddha says, I do not say that the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths is accompanied by suffering or displeasure. It is accompanied only by happiness and joy, which at first sight might sound a bit surprising given the fact that it begins with fully knowing dukkha. Very often Buddhism is somehow uh, thought of as a rather gloomy and dark approach to life since it gives so much focus on dukkha. But that sort of uh, reservation Uh, is one, I think, that fails to see that the starting point of dukkha is not an end in itself. And in fact, it's coming to, as it were, a a more honest and truthful acknowledgement of the condition that we are in. And by doing that in a systematic and attentive way, that we begin to actually let go of many habits that Uh, confine us and constrain us and constrict us and limit us thereby opening up another way of life in the world. And this way of life and I think the eightfold path could just as well be translated as an eightfold way of life is likewise something that um, is very much a an unfolding, it's a process, it's a living thing it avoids dead ends now the dead ends that he speaks of here are the two that you're probably familiar with I've translated it as infatuation and mortification, it's often translated as sensory indulgence and self-mortification in other words one extreme or one dead end is to just keep pursuing the, uh, the path of, of, of gratifying whatever desire or whatever longing comes up and just running after it. The other dead end is to uh, think that, well, that didn't work. Now I'd better start punishing myself. Now the classic examples of that are yogis in India at the Buddha's day and even nowadays um, who will stay, spend, for example, five years standing on one leg. I doubt that is our sort of knee-jerk response to I'm not getting enough satisfaction in this world. I think I'll go and stand on one leg for five years. So I think we have to rethink what it means to, to avoid the dead end of mortification. There's a very curious text in the Udana, which is a, where I cited, for example, the image of the elephant and the blind men. This is in the same collection as that. And here the Buddha gives a rather different sense of what, this, of what these two dead ends are. He starts by saying, what has been attained and what is still to be attained, in other words, one's practice as it were, both these are littered with dust for a frail person. Those who hold training as the essence or who hold virtue and vow, it's the same word, morality, pure livelihood, celibacy and service as the essence This is one dead end. And those with such theories and such views as, oh, there's nothing wrong in pursuing sensual desire, this is the second dead end. Both dead ends cause the cemeteries to grow. (laughs) And the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two dead ends, some hold back and some go too far. Now what's surprising about this passage is the Buddha seems to be setting up as the two dead ends, not uh, simply indulgence and mortification, but something more akin to the way of the world and the way of religion. It's rather surprising that he would list things that we are normally encouraged to do. Morality, livelihood, pure livelihood, celibacy. And he talks of these as a dead end. Now, I suppose the the way that would normally be interpreted would be to say, well, to be attached to those things is a dead end. But I'm not sure, because you wouldn't say with regard to sensual desires, that be, to be attached to sensual desires, is a dead end. I think both those statements are true, but I feel they somehow uh, dull the impact of what's being said. They, they give a convenient qualification. There's nothing wrong in these things. It's our attachment to them. But perhaps we have to think through something a little bit deeper here that possibly what the Buddha is suggesting is a way of life uh, that's neither one of worldly indulgence nor is it one of renunciation and uh, denial. But it's somehow avoiding both those tendencies. All he says as to what that way of life would be is by describing it in terms of appropriate or right view or thinking, seeing, talking and so on that Martin has been covering in the evening, these eight steps of the Eightfold Path. But he does seem to be flagging the fact that uh, even a very um, overtly spiritual or religious life can just as much be a dead end as one of kind of Don Juan indulgence. So it sets up very much the idea of perhaps a way of life that um, transcends both. And he says, of course, at the end of the at the end of the text, um, illumination arose in me about things previously unknown. And I don't think this is just uh, concerning the experience of Nibbana, but actually perhaps this whole other way of living in the world. Now, as I've mentioned before, the, the four truths, and which are in a sense the core of the first sermon, are very much a... Um, a a statement or a a development of the idea of conditioned arising. In other words, how fully knowing dukkha is the condition for the letting go of craving, the letting go, the condition for the stopping, and the stopping the condition that opens up the possibility of another way of life. We can also see the eight steps of the Eightfold Path themselves as operating along a similar trajectory. In other words, the way we, we see ourselves and the world, our, our Weltanschauung, our, our sense of what the world is like and what we are like, is very often the condition for how we then make choices, how we make decisions, how we think and reflect. And how we think and reflect and decide is the precondition for how we speak and how we act and how we work. And that lays a foundation, an ethical foundation, for how we then focus our energies, how we then decide on what really matters for us in life and seek to put that into practice. And that leads then to a way of attending to our experience and the world, mindfulness, recollecting, as I translate it here, which likewise um, is a precondition for becoming focused and concentrated. But of course the question then comes up, mindful of what, concentrated on what, And then we get back to the first noble truth. We focus on anicca, dukkha, anatta, which are the characteristics of uh, the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering. And so what I think comes through here, at least in my reading of it, is that the, the path, the Eightfold Path, does not culminate in some final goal but rather it initiates um, uh, a feed, a positive feedback loop or a feed-forward loop. Uh, someone in an audience, I think in New Mexico, uh, said that it sounds very much like the process of, of, of contractions in giving birth. I don't have her little piece of paper that explained that in detail. I think she might have been a midwife or something. But... Uh, That, she describes, is a positive feedback loop. Every part of that contraction feeds back into the body to promote the next contraction. And I rather like that image. Um, And I think that the Eightfold Path, in a way, is about um, giving birth to something. It is about uh, entering into a new life. And again there's inevitable in our culture uh, Christian associations being born into the life of Christ. Uh, quite lit- literally being born again. And I feel that there are resonances of this probably in all traditions but if we were to put that in a Buddhist frame this is how I would see it. And so by reading the four truths in this way um, We're not anymore uh, thinking of it as a kind of um, schedule for finally attaining nirvana. But rather we are seeing it as a continuous ongoing process that we are uh, choosing to do. And yet at the same time is very much uh, in tune with the nature of the conditioned world itself so so we can see the four truths, the eightfold path as conditioned arisings a process of cause effect, cause effect cause effect as a practice but also it is mirroring um, a process of uh, the way the world unfolds quite spontaneously and quite Naturally, anyway. And the concluding uh, phrase um, at the very end of the sutta, where it says, uh, Where is it? It says that as the Buddha was speaking, there arose in Kondanya, Kondanya was the elder of the five monks or ascetics to whom he was teaching. Uh, Kondanya, in a, in a sense, replies to the Buddha and says, "Whatever arises is something that ceases." Now, and again, in some ways, that sounds almost like a, a rather bland truism, and yet it seems to encapsulate uh, this man's response to what he has just heard, and it is, of course, another um, reflection on an understanding of impermanence and contingency. So again and again, we keep coming back to this idea of contingency. And I'm going to start using contingency now rather than the rather clumsy conditioned arising. Contingency. And again, going back to what we said some days ago, it's worth repeating... One who sees contingency says the Buddha sees the Dhamma, and the one who sees the Dhamma sees contingency. That the two ideas are intimately tied, if not synonymous. There's another passage that concerns this that I find quite quite helpful. Uh, this is in the Dighanikaya number 15. This contingency, says the Buddha, is profound and it appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this Dhamma, that people have become like tangled balls of string, covered with a blight, unable to pass beyond states of woe, ill destiny, ruin, and repetition. For for many of us, I think, um, it's difficult to see what's difficult in this idea. In what sense is it profound? Um, Let me just talk of an experience I had myself of this before I became a Buddhist. This was when I would have been about probably 14 or 15 years old. And it was one Christmas in my uncle and aunt's house near Chichester. And my mother and her sister were leafing through a photograph album and they came to a picture of um, an army officer. It must have been, I think, in the North African desert where my mother was stationed for some time. And this was a typical sort of 8th Army type, khaki shorts, pipe... Pete cat and my mother uh, said just as an aside to her sister and, oh, sorry an aside to me really she said oh if things had turned out differently he would have been your father and I remember at the time feeling very very un- unsettled by that idea because it occurred to me well if he had been my father would I have been me And it triggered a kind of of, of train of of thought that, um, and again, I probably didn't phrase it like this when I was that age, but it's an experience that has always remained with me. But what it boils down to is that my existence here is not necessary. I need not have existed. And um, Richard Dawkins makes this point in one of his books. He says it's far infinitely more likely for us not to exist than to exist. The number of potential genetic configurations between spermatozoa and ova far outnumbers the actual number of fertilised ova that make it. And we are, in the end, the product of a fertilised ovum. So if, for example, as my mother and father were in the process of conceiving me, let's say the telephone rang. (laughs) And let's imagine that the telephone rang at that unearthly hour of the night because somebody had dialed 73256 but actually wanted to dial 73255. (laughs) Now, this would be a minor inconvenience for the my parents, but it could have resulted in me not existing. <laughs> um, and if I hadn't existed, none of my books would exist. We wouldn't perhaps be here now. The whole world would perhaps be, in some ways, another world. Now, that, to me... Uh, again, shows how uh, what we are comes about upon causes and conditions, which sounds a rather bland statement. But when you personalise it a bit, I arose upon causes and conditions, and when we think of that in terms of how we we now know how life is conceived and so on, it makes our whole sense of being me um, a very precarious thing and a very... Uh, almost like a kind of a, almost like chance. Um, religions, including Buddhism, like to get to 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 to, to, to somehow somehow rationalise this rather discomforting thought away, by either saying that we are the children of God, we're somehow conceived in the mind of God, and then we are a soul with some sort of eternal essence in it. Or the Buddhists would then, or the Hindus, will appeal to the law of karma, that somehow everything is preordained because of all the previous actions we have done. And those theories might provide some comfort, some consolation, and they, they might provide what appears to be an explanation, although in fact neither have hardly any explanatory power, because they can, both theories can explain everything. In that sense, they're not terribly helpful in really telling us much. But the reflective conclusion that one might draw about contingency or conditioned arising, impermanence, and in a way, the, the, the key terms the Buddha's using are very suggestive of this kind of perspective, that things are not solid and fixed and real and essential that they arise out of a bewildering array of conditions and come into fruition. And once they've come into fruition, they may last a while or they may not, and they'll vanish again and they'll be gone. So this is how I find the idea of contingency or conditioned arising actually has an impact on my own sense of who I am and who others are. It both points to the, um, the, the unlikeliness that we are here at all, that the world is here, uh, and also to the extraordinary sense of, of wonder and awe that it is. A sense perhaps of gratitude is quite a common one. Uh, a, a sense of, um, of, 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 of a deep sense of mystery that this is happening and that it will stop happening. Now, I'd like to take this idea of contingency a little bit further now and um, look at some texts that, uh, where the Buddha himself starts talking uh, about this idea in a more philosophical way. So, excuse me if I'm going to go somewhat abstract for some of you now. This is um, a text called the Kachayana Gotha Sutta, the discourse given to Kachayana or Kachana in Pali. And um, Kachana comes up to the Buddha and he says, um, uh, Appropriate seeing, appropriate seeing, or right view, right view. In what way is there right view? And this is the Buddha's answer. He says, the, This world, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence, or being, a non-being. But for one who sees the origin of the world with intelligence or with wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to this world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world with intelligence, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. Everything exists, or the phrase, everything exists, kachana, this is one dead end. Nothing exists, kachana, this view is the other dead end. Without veering towards either of these dead ends, The Tathagata, the Buddha, teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. So the middle way um, is not just um, used as a, a description of a way of life in the world, avoiding indulgence and mortification or worldliness or religiosity. But this idea goes far deeper than that. It has to do with a a particular way of of, of thinking, a particular suspicion now of two of the most primary concepts in thought-language logic, namely being and not being, existence and non-existence. The Buddha feels that both these terms are inadequate at describing the actual way the world happens. Now, just to give an example of how this this idea is is, is somehow difficult to take hold, we often hear in Buddhist texts, at least English translations of Buddhist texts, that says that the, the Buddha or the awakened one sees things as they really are. Uh, we see things as they really are. It's a phrase that comes up again and again and again. But the, the Pali expression, see things as they really are, is yata butang. Yata Butang. Now, we might expect that one of those words would be the word to be, to see things as they are. But we don't find in yata Butang a term that means anything like being. Yata Bhutang, instead of meaning the way things are, means the way things happen. This is the way things really happen. Uh, Bhuta, in Pāli and Sanskrit, means to, to arise. In Old English, it's to hap. Things come about. We're not trying to see how things are, but we're trying to see how things happen, see how things come about, arise and vanish. So there's a very deep habit we have to somehow think of insight or enlightenment or whatever we call it as a kind of veridical, deep insight into the nature of what is Now the Buddha is very suspicious of the whole idea of is and is not. That the fluid unfolding of life itself is not containable either in terms of the idea of being or in the idea of non-being. Both ideas somehow miss the emergent, contingent, flowing nature of what's happening. And so the Buddha says that if you, if you see with intelligence the origin of the world, in other words, how things arise, then you can't say it doesn't exist. You've seen it come into bit, you've seen it come about, happen. And if you notice how... Um, that thing inevitably ceases to happen, it stops, then it's impossible to say that that thing is, that has true being. That impermanence, conditioned arising, contingency, all of these are terms that point to um, a process that cannot be um, adequately Defined in terms of either being or non being, either is or is not. Now, this passage, uh, this text to Kachayana, um, is particularly uh, important in Buddhist tradition because this is the only text that Nagarjuna cites in his key work on emptiness. The Moolamadyamaka Karikas, which I've translated as a book called Verses from the Center. That this idea is what gives, is this notion of a middle way between being and not being is the root of the Buddhist conception of emptiness. Things are empty because they, are, they neither are nor are not And I think that it's interesting the Buddha does not use this word. Uh, Or quite rarely does he use the word emptiness. I think it's problematic because it suggests something. Whereas the Buddha's way of talking about it is to talk of a middle way between being and non-being. In other words, he gives it a processual feel. And Nagarjuna this 2nd century AD philosopher, who develops the idea of emptiness, says the same thing. for, For Nagarjuna, contingency is emptiness. The two terms are synonymous. Conditioned arising and emptiness are synonymous. Things are empty because they do not have any essence of their own, And they do not have any essence or essential being of their own because they arise out of conditions other than themselves and because they become the condition for something else and then disappear. There's nothing essentially there. Another way that um, the Buddha talks of this, and now we're talking particularly about about the self... And that's what I want to bring this on to. We have another exchange, this time not with kachayana but with a, another character who appears quite a lot in the Pali Canon, a man called Vachagota. Vachagota wasn't a Buddhist, but he was a sharp guy who had a lot of questions. So one day, Vachagota comes up to the Buddha and he says, so, how is it, Master Gautama?, Is there a self? And the Buddha remained silent. So Vachagota said, okay then. How is it, Master Gotama? Is there no self? And the Buddha again remained silent. Vachagota got up from his seat and went away. (laughs) Uh, Understandably. He wasn't getting very far with this. (laughs) Then the Buddha turned to his attendant, Ananda, and said, If I had answered, there is a self, this would have been siding with those who are eternalists. And if I had answered, there is no self, that would have been siding with those who are nihilists. So again, we get the same, exactly the same idea. The idea of um, a middle way. And uh, this is another classical way in which uh, the middle path is described. It's a middle way between eternalism and nihilism, which you know, quite clearly is just one step ratcheted up from being and non-being. People who believe in being, in some pure being, true being, eternal, fundamental, divine, whatever... The Buddhists call those people eternalists. Literally, it means people who have the view of something permanent. And people who say there's nothing. It's all just nothing. There's nothing there, really. It's all just uh, meaningless chaos or whatever. Nothing really exists. Those people, um, the Buddha calls Uchedavadin. We usually translate it as nihilist, but we have to be a little bit careful because that word has associations today that it would not have had for the Buddha. Literally, Uchedavada means those who hold a view of cutting off. So you have two positions, the view of something being permanent and the view that everything is ultimately cut off. So... Here we have also a rather telling comment because I suspect many Buddhists would have expected the Buddha to have said there is no self. This has become such a kind of dogma of um, of popular Buddhism and even doctrinal Buddhism. Um, In some schools, in in Buddhaghosa, in some of the later Theravada commentaries, you have the idea that that the aggregates, the body, the feelings, the perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, those things are somehow real, but there's no self there. There's just data, physical, emotional, mental data, rising and passing away, but there's no one there. There's no one at all. There's no self, literally. I don't think the Buddha is saying that. What he seems to be saying is rather more, rather more difficult to pin down. He's not affirming self, he's not saying there is, but he's also saying the self is not non-existent. Both these passages, I think, make that quite clear. If you are following a path that avoids being and non-being, then clearly, if you start affirming there is no self... You have slipped into the extreme of, of nihilism in the Buddha's own terms. Nagarjuna goes so far, uh, the Buddha doesn't say this. Nagarjuna says in one verse, he says, You have to find a middle way between permanence and impermanence. To believe that everything is impermanent is a negative, is, is a nihilist view. To believe that things are permanent is an eternalist view. So there is, I think, here um, a deep suspicion of the categories of language, particularly in terms of uh, the Aristotelian opposites, a and not a, being and non-being. The, what the Buddha is pointing to, I think, um, is uh, a way of life that, and a way of thinking uh, that does not get stuck in any of these antimonies or opposites. And I feel that that view is, much, is is a very processual and living approach to ideas and to life. It's about, if we think of the idea of it's, it's like a stream, it's entering a stream. It's something that's continuously moving on, never getting stuck and at the same time never ending in a way. But we have another passage about the self, since we're now on this topic. And and here... So to find my quotes. Here we have a passage that um, I only discovered relatively recently when I was um, in my Pali studies, which are still at a very basic level. And I was reading a book which is essentially the equivalent of... Pali for dummies. And um, it's a very it's a very it's a very challenging way to learn Pali because they give you ex they give they tell you a certain they give you a certain bit of vocabulary, they give you some grammatical indicators and rules, they try to teach you one or two bits and pieces of Pali syntax or whatever. Then they give you an exercise to translate a passage, but they don't give you the translation. You really have to try and figure it out by yourself. Of course, cunning students like myself know where to track these things down in the canon <laughs> <laughs> and then can look up the English translation. But um, a good student would actually seek to work it out for himself. Now this is, a, this is verse 80 eight zero, of the Dhammapada, which is a text I'm sure most of you have read. And I've read it many times too. But this particular verse only struck home when I read it in Pali. This is the verse. It says, Just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, atanam pandita is the Pali, which means... So the sage, the pandita, the wise person, tames the self. Now, what um, struck me was that um, the word atta, self, same atta as in un not self, atta is in the accusative singular. Now, Uh, Non-philologists, linguists, that may not be a terribly great revelation. (laughs) But um, what it means is that the Buddha is using the word self um, as a noun in the accusative sense, meaning it is the direct object of the verb in the same way that the farmer, subject, irrigates, verb, field, object. Fletcher, subject, fashions, verb, arrow, object. The same exact grammatic structure. But in every English translation I've come across, the translator is a little bit squirmy about the S word. And so it usually gets translated as the wise person tames himself. In other words, they make self into a reflexive function of the verb rather than keep it as the direct object of the verb. I think that's subtly misleading. And um, it's also uh, slightly surprising because you don't expect, at least you don't expect if you've been programmed by a lot of what Buddhism is supposed to teach, to find the word self being used in a non-problematic and in an entirely positive way. And in fact, the Buddha here in this passage, I think is being entirely true to his idea of contingency and permanence, the development of the path, in that he presents the self not as something that exists, as a kind of a fixed thing, nor as something that doesn't exist, but rather he presents the self as a project to be realized, as a project to be to be realized, something to be done. And if you think about these images, these metaphors, which he's drawing from the world of everyday craft and work, they're very um, earthy metaphors. He's therefore comparing the self. And again, we have to be careful. The word self is problematic because we because the way language works we think that we have a self um, and then we try in meditation to find the self and of course we don't but it would perhaps be less problematic if we just recognize that by the word utter we're referring to you and me and you and you it's just another way of saying I it's what enables us to differentiate one person from another that's me as opposed to you. But with the word um, self, we sort of add another slightly sort of metaphysical idea and think of it as having some sort of separate reality from me. As me and myself. I, me and myself. It's a bit like um, this nuisance word in English, ego, um, which probably... Started with Freud, but the weird thing is, when you read Freud in German, he doesn't use the word ego. He uses the word das Ich, the I. And for some reason that I've never understood, when they translated Freud in from German into English, they chose to translate the key words into Latin: ego, id super-ego, instead of um, ich, uh, es, and über-ich, the I, the it, and the above-I. Oh no, in English we have to have it in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> and so many people think today, though well, there's the ego, and that's usually considered to be a bad thing, but nobody assumes that's the same as the I. And yet it's the same word. So I think we have a similar problem here a tradition has somehow read perhaps something unintended into the use of the word self, and has missed the fact that it's just the way we talk about I. I think this is captured very well in... I always forget which movie it is. It's either Mary Poppins or um, Sound of Music. It goes, Doe, a deer, a female deer. Ray, a pack of golden sun. Me, a name, I call myself. That's all it is. Me, a name, I call myself. So in that sense, it, the the, the, the Buddha is suggesting a notion of self neither as existent nor as non-existent but as something to be done. Something that you create in the same way that a farmer irrigates a field. Now if you think about it, he seems to be suggesting therefore that For many people, they feel themselves to be like a barren field, an unirrigated field. Uh, An unirrigated field is basically one in which crops, trees, bushes do not grow. There's something um, uh, dead, lifeless, or maybe just a few weeds springing up here and there. But by running channels of water through or around that space, you nourish it in such a way that it becomes um, capable of producing a harvest of wheat, of plum trees, whatever it might be. But it ceases to be a static, barren state and it becomes a flourishing environment. So here we have a very clear um, uh, recognition that... Um, Buddhist practice is not that of getting rid of yourself or your ego, but actually it's about learning to water yourself. And I mentioned yesterday how we keep finding in early Buddhist texts the metaphor of water, uh, entering the stream. Or Mara is the one who, who holds back the water. Or the Buddha speaks of his teaching as like the ocean. We'll come to that tomorrow. Water, water, water. And here we have irrigating the field of yourself. In other words, uh, and again I think uh, we can see this in terms of our practice. Uh, my Tibetan teacher, uh, Geshe Rabton, used to describe meditation as like uh, digging irrigation channels in your mind. In other words, When we encounter a situation, our first reaction, let's say it's anger or attachment or boredom, is basically the uh, behavior that is most well entrenched in our minds. It's like the, the channel that's already dug deep. And the more that we go along that channel, the more we dig it a little bit deeper, the more it becomes such a uh, habitual and entrenched behavior that uh, we begin to think that that's who we really are. I'm an angry person. That's me. Whereas if we start digging another trench called, let's say, mindful attention or concentration or patience or whatever virtue that we are working on, then over time, that begins to, 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 to become more and more the default way we respond because that trench becomes deeper. Uh, this, of course, has immediate um, associations with some of the research that's been going on recently talking about how meditation um, establishes certain neural pathways. Again, it's the same idea. A path, if you think about it, is a little trench it's a little ditch along which something can flow freely. So the practice we're doing, in some ways, is behavioural. It's cognitive behavioural therapy, basically. The Buddha just happened to be the first cognitive therapist. Yes. The, it's about you know consciously and and mindfully um, opening up other channels of behaviour in our lives and and practice, in other words, doing it. In a conscious and 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 uh, and, and uh, continuous way, uh, is what will work over time. The second image is that of a Fletcher fashioning an arrow. This again is like it's rather different. Here, an arrow is something that you put together from different of, from different components: the shaft, the fletch, or the arrow, the the, the, the feathers the metal point, and you have to put it together with great skill in order that it can then be fired unerringly onto its target. Now this is also an image of self, an image of what you could be, what you could become. Your life could become more focused, more directed, more streamlined, rather than shooting off in all directions in a somewhat unpredictable and uh, um, random sort of way again it's a powerful image it's an image of focus it's an image of directedness and it's not just talking of a mental state but actually of you becoming more directed being more focused having clear targets that you focus your energies upon and the third image is a carpenter shaping a piece of wood. In other words, we are a bit like an unformed piece of wood. And the, the, the practice that we engage in, both meditation, ethics, our work, our creative life, all of these things are in a way the, 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 the process by which we give form and shape and structure and and distinctiveness to who we are. And what it points to uh, quite clearly here is that uh, the self, the person, I, um, am an ongoing process, a narrative, something that's continuously opening up to new possibilities I think it's an encouragement uh, not to assume that we are a particular way but to recognize that we can behave differently, we can make choices, we can take risks, we have uh, tremendous potential provided that we work on realizing that potential. So in some ways there's a process of uh, creativity involved in becoming the person that we aspire towards—it's um, a—it's a task, much in the same way as each of the four noble truths is a task. That—that that you are a task, you are a project. You're not something that is fixed. Neither are you something non-existent. But you're a process. You're a task. You're a project to be realised. And that I feel is what is. Uh, profoundly distinctive uh, in the Buddha's approach you don't find anything remotely like this in the classical Indian literature of the Vedas the Upanishads or in the Jain teachings but also we find that much of Buddhism has likewise I think lost touch with some of these core ideas in any case Uh, That's where we'll stop today and tomorrow (coughs) we'll continue with this but we'll look at how um, the Buddhas uh, had a vision of what kind of society (coughs) uh, such a person, such persons might aspire towards. Not just a personal view now but a wider view of the kind of world the Buddha's teachings seem to be envisioning.